You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Holly, the director of our committee. I'm joined today by our host, Elisa, and Brian Egan, a national security lawyer. Elisa is here in her individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Brian is a longtime national security lawyer with deep experience. We've hyperlinked his bio. Uh, Rather than going into detail on his full bio, please find it hyperlinked with the podcast. All right, the truth is his bio is so long and so rich with accomplishment that if we started to go through it, we'd never have a podcast, but we do. But before I get to the podcast, I don't know where you're going to be on November 7th and 8th, but I can tell you where I'm going to be and where every serious national security lawyer is going to be. Holly, where is that? That is at the annual review of the field of national security law. This is the 29th year that we are hosting this. It is November 7 and 8 at the Capitol Hilton in Washington, D.C. Not to be missed. Not to be missed. And I'm sure when this podcast is over, you're going to go into the website, which will be hyperlinked, and you can purchase tickets there. So let's talk about this week. Okay, today we're recording. It is 9-11. Let's remember that 9-11 occurred 18 years ago today, and we do remember the victims in this podcast. But today we're here to talk about something that is related to terrorism, Um, But we're also going to talk about major events. So a major national security event occurred in August, but uh, it wasn't a plane coming into a building, so it got very little recognition. But it's very serious. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, and the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, had a public conversation about the dollar and its future. Like an underground explosion that is only felt much later, this announcement signaled a momentous change. We're here to talk today about the weaponization of the dollar as a national security tool, and whether we are are witnessing right now the diminution of that once powerful tool. We're glad you could join us tonight, and my special guest is our friend Brian Egan, who probably knows more about the International Economic Powers Act, or IEPA, as we're going to talk about it, um, the weaponization of the dollar, and sanctions. And Brian, we're really glad you could join us tonight. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you both, Lisa and Holly. All right. um, So, uh, Brian, I reached out to you because I opened the Financial Times, which as a nerdy person I have to read because I think it's rich with national security news. Uh, And the newspaper, you know, it's known for its sober coverage of markets. It featured an incredible picture of uh, Chairman Powell and Mr. Carney standing, um, looking out at, what are those, the Great Tetons or something, Um, wistfully. And the sign in front of them reads, I want to be clear with our listeners here, do not stand on the railing. Um, But they're looking out at what I think is, you know, an incredible American landscape. Uh, but within the article, there was some disturbing language for me. It was uh, both alarming, wistful, and sad. And it said, for the world's central bankers gathering in Jackson Hole, there was a sense that things would never be the same. The U.S. can no longer be considered a predictable actor in economic or trade policy. What was this conversation at Jackson Hole about, Brian? <laughs> right. 
Well, first of all, I want to make clear that when Elisa said she opened the newspaper, she literally opened the newspaper. So uh, that's something I would recommend to our younger listeners to try uh, in your spare time. Although uh, it's great online, and I have both. There's just nothing <laughs> more wonderful than the FT and a cup of coffee in the morning. Right. That's right. And you can see the Grand Tetons in all their glory in the, in the <laughs> fine print of the newspaper. So I, I agree, Elisa, that this conversation uh, that was reported in the, in the Financial Times was a somewhat startling conversation. Um, but it, in a way, it's really the latest chapter in a story that has been building for some time. Uh, and it relates to the position of the United States and the U.S. dollar in particular in international trade and finance. When I say this story has been building for a long time, we've heard over the years, uh, over the last decade in particular, a number of bankers and economists and government officials predicting or even hoping or urging the demise of the U.S. dollar in international trade. Uh, Mr. Carney himself, who's the head of the Bank of England, he's made similar comments in the past, although what we read about from Jackson Hole was probably his, at least the starkest comments that I'm aware of him making. He noted what he considered to be the negative effects of U.S. dollar trade. He characterized this as quote, the domineering influence of the U.S. dollar on global trade, and he predicted that a global digital currency could, or maybe even should, replace the U.S. dollar in international trade in the coming years. That would be the position of Facebook at this point, right? <laughs> right. With oh dear, I can hear the thunder now. <laughs> Yeah, so it was uh, it was quite remarkable in that way. A uh, key US, UK, U.S. ally themselves, who were once the dominant currency in the world, look calling for a change in part because of what they see as turbulence in our system today. Wow, that's frightening. Uh, speaking of turbulence, they have a bit of their own going on today as we're doing this. But let's explain. So um, the dollar, everything is tethered globally. Every financial transaction is tethered to the dollar and so on. But I would, can you talk about why the dollar is the key fiat, meaning fiat currency, meaning a currency issued officially by a government? Why is that? Yeah, so I'm not a real expert in this matter, but uh, I can give you my layman's understanding. And as a matter of history, the rise of the dollar really goes back uh, almost 100 years uh, to the founding of the Federal Reserve in the early 20th century and the creation of the U.S. dollar as we know it uh, at that time. Before then, individual banks issued their own currency, wildly unpredictable what was going to happen. Wow. And finally, the U.S. government decided we need a federal currency like the U.S. dollar. But at that time, uh, the pound had been the dominant global currency for well over a century itself. And stating the obvious, but the pound sterling is the official British currency. They've never adopted the euro even though they are, at least as of this recording, uh, member, <laughs> members of the right. European Union. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so, uh, and for a while, the pound was even more anachronistic than the dollar is in that it was not tied to decimal figures, but rather to shillings and pence. So if you were a global trader, you not only had to understand the pound, but you also had to understand these crazy things that only Englishmen talked about in terms of the fractions of the pound. The shilling being 20p, to be clear, <laughs> and a pence being like their penny, so to speak. But yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so that was 100 years ago. Uh, so for a variety of reasons, uh, including the, the World War I and World War II eras where the UK was a heavy debtor nation and the US was a heavy creditor, we entered both wars late. We were the major supplier of arms to the UK and to the other allies, 
as a result, we build up a huge currency reserve. Um, the U.S. dollar replaced the pound as the currency of choice, and it was kind of recognized as such in the Bretton Woods Agreement and the Bretton Woods system right after World War II, where the U.S. government agreed to tie its currency to gold, and other uh, major economies agreed to tie their currency to the dollar. So that was event one that kind of cemented the U.S. as the key world currency. A second, relatively more recent event took place in the 1970s. So we have inflation, we have ups and downs in the U.S. economy. Uh, the U.S. can actually no longer tie its currency to the gold standard. We unilaterally withdrew from that in the early 1970s. However, what the U.S. government did was went to Saudi Arabia, uh, and in a negotiation, the Saudis agreed that Saudi oil could only be purchased with the U.S. dollar moving forward uh, in the 1970s. Uh, the result of that, the Saudis being the world's dominant oil producer, was that all oil trading eventually uh, was in U.S. dollars. The price of oil uh, on the open markets was priced in U.S. dollars, again, cementing the U.S. dollar as the key uh, global currency uh, moving forward. Uh, and as you said, so today we see the dollar uh, in so many ways continue to be the dominant global currency. Many foreign currencies, I think dozens of foreign currencies, are uh, officially tied to the U.S. dollar pegged to the value of the dollar. Uh, SWIFT, the international messaging system, operates in U.S. dollars. And let, let's, let's expand on that just a little. Some people, believe it or not, may not know what SWIFT is, but it is the means by which money is transferred between banks across the globe. That's Electronically, right. if you will. Yes, yeah, it's um, the official mechanism that banks use to communicate with each other and therefore transfer funds between each other for, to, to make international trade happen. Uh, so SWIFT operates uh, in U.S. dollars, even though it's not a uh, U.S. domiciled uh, entity. Uh, it is, uh, I think it's based in, in France or Switzerland, I'm not sure. Uh, so, But those are just a couple of the reasons why the U.S. dollar has remained kind of the dominant uh, currency uh, even today, even with our adversaries uh, to a large part still being tied to the U.S. dollar. And it's been a tremendously stable currency when compared to others across the globe, perhaps for that reason, but also because of our, quite frankly, system of democracy that works and functions very well. That, that's right. That definitely the predictability of our uh, system, our relative predictability of our system, uh, and our policies have been one factor uh, that has made the dollar stay dominant. Right. Well, okay, so, but we've entered a new era. I think there's one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree was that the issue of sort of China rising was going to have to be addressed one way or another. But this president has cast himself as the China breaker. Um, I don't know that that's language he used, um, but he has now imposed tariffs um, on Chinese, Chinese goods. They've responded in kind and perhaps even in a more heavy-handed way than he has. Um, what is this going to do to this sort of natural order of things, the, the role of the United States with respect to the dollar and its sort of hegemony, if you will, um, over these important global markets, particularly ones involving energy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that one, uh, many see the China tariffs and the overall the so-called trade war between the U.S. and China as kind of one of the symptoms of the problem of relying on the dollar as a global currency and why the global economy should try to move away, uh, shake loose from the U.S. dollar. So uh, as you said, Elisa, many economies, big investors, institutional investors, are willing to rely on the dollar 
in part because of the relative predictability and stability, not only of the U.S. economy, but of our economic policy. Uh, so for that reason, the U.S. dollar has been seen as a low-risk investment by many governments and large investors, uh, which leads to reliance on it, continued reliance on the dollar. So under that uh, theory, an increasingly unpredictable U.S. trade and economic policy would make governments and investors less willing to rely on or invest in dollars, which would be a threat to the continued predominance of the U.S. dollar in global trade. Now, there are some skeptics who say, you know, understandably, look, that's not a change that can happen overnight. Uh, there are no, and what's the alternative to the U.S. dollar? Which currency is more reliable? Which system is more reliable than the U.S. economic system? And that's where some of the ideas that Mr. Carney were talking about uh, and that, you know, others have talked about, a, about a global currency or a common currency, a digital currency come into play, something that's not tied to any government monetary policy. All right, and it's not British sour grapes that we're talking about here. Um, <laughs> although some, yeah, I forget, somebody was famously quoted, maybe Churchill, uh, although I'm sure some listener will know this better than me, as saying that the, the, the second worst thing that happened to Britain coming out of World War II was the Bretton Woods Agreement, where Britain kind of conceded the dominance of the U.S. dollar. So He did actually <laughs> say something on that score. That is absolutely right. He said so many fun things. Yeah. Um, so... Let me just, before we leave that topic, I think I like to sometimes unpack things for people. But when you talk about the predictability of the dollar, and so one thing I think it's, is also to understand sort of the kinetics involved in these investments, people who run private equity firms need to be able to explain kind of where they see their investments going. And if they're not even sure about the dollar, this this stuff gets very chaotic. And, I you know, I to the point of the person who, the skeptic, who may have said we can't just, you know, um, unravel involvement with the dollar overnight, um, that does seem more likely. But on the other hand, if there were some abandonment of the dollar, I mean, I could actually see a situation where there was a period of no investment. Mm -hmm. And that could be obviously catastrophic uh, to the global economy. That's concerning. Um, also, so I, I would just point out to our mm -hmm. listeners, as I have before, that there are various definitions of what our critical infrastructure is, but it's certainly the case um, that our primacy is fundamentally linked, our global primacy, our ability to um, sort of influence global policy um, in a positive way, I think largely, is linked to our economic privacy, which I think, I wonder, you know, if the dollar were gone, would we really hold that role anymore? Certainly England lost it rather quickly, and there's no such a thing anymore as a British empire. But in the national security space, focusing on a narrow thing here, mm -hmm. which is our sanctions regime, if you could sort of just recap for our listeners what that generally looks like. Mm -hmm. I know we have Treasury has a role, mm -hmm. um, State Department, OFAC, mm -hmm. um, and then there is a statute, you mm -hmm. know, IEPA, as I've said earlier, um, which could be found for our listeners at uh, 50 USC, I think it is 1701 at SEC. Um, but what's going to happen to the U.S. sanction mm -hmm. re regime if mm -hmm. we can't? control the dollar. Yeah. The dollar is not the dominant fiat currency. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think it's a good example for why the, this issue is important as a national security matter, because really the effectiveness of the U.S. sanctions regime, particularly when it's a unilateral U.S.-only or U.S.-dominated instrument, uh, by that I mean it's not U.N.-led, there's not a coalition, but the U.S. decides it wants to make policy through sanctions. That's heavily dependent on the continued dominance of the U.S. dollar in the global economy. So let's unpack that a little bit. Why is that so? 
Well, first, from a regulatory perspective, the U.S. government takes a position that its sanctions are applicable. It has sanctions jurisdiction over any transaction that transits the U.S. financial system. The U.S. says all of those transactions are subject to our jurisdiction and therefore must comply with U.S. sanctions. So think about an example, the example of oil trading, for example. The U.S. government takes a position that a U.S. dollar denominated sale of non-U.S. oil, so uh, let's say Iranian oil, between two non-U.S. Let's par- say this week. <laughs> yeah, for example. Uh, so between two non-U.S. parties is subject to U.S. sanctions if the transaction transits the U.S. financial system. So in other words, Saudi oil, well, let's take let's a little less controversial example. Saudi oil, U.K. buyer, the sale is in pounds or it's in, in euros, uh, not necessarily subject to U.S. sanctions. Sales in dollars, which it must be uh, under the current system, it is subject to U.S. sanctions because 99% of the time that transaction must go through a U.S. bank in order to make the, uh, the dollar uh, part of that transaction happen. So a U.S. financial system or institution will be involved in providing financial services to effectuate the transaction. So that's one way that our sanctions rely on the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Another way, though, is for transactions that have no connection to the U.S. economy. Uh, and this is where we talk about, some people talk about secondary sanctions. So U.S. uses secondary sanctions to try to coerce or cajole foreign actors to comply with our policy for transactions that really have no connection to the U.S. So let's take the oil transaction again. Uh, U.K. Uh, buyer wants to buy oil from Iran. Uh, the transaction is in euros. There are no U.S. parties involved. You would look at that transaction and say, well, where is the U.S. jurisdiction to regulate that transaction? And the U.S. government would say, okay, well, maybe we don't have jurisdiction to regulate that transaction, but we have the ability to influence that transaction because of the dominance of the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. government gives the parties to that transaction a choice, is how they say it sometimes. You can do business with Iran if you're the U.K., or you can do business with the U.S., but you can't do business with both. And all business is not oil. And, and uh, most businesses, <laughs> yes. some nexus to the United States. That's because so, of the dollar, yeah. You know, if you do the math, you're kind of like, oh, you know, this shipment of oil or every single other thing <laughs> that we have going on. Right, right. And on balance, obviously, the, yeah. the United States would be the choice that they would yes, make that's right. in, in a practical situation. And that's particularly true because of the dollar. Because even if you're not trading in U.S. goods, if you have to use the U.S. dollar to conduct business, you need to use a U.S. financial institution most of the time. So uh, when faced with that choice, Lisa, exactly right. You do the calculation, you say, I, I just can't risk losing access to U.S. markets. Right, and it's not they're not just going to do it for the goodness of their hearts and because our system is generally corruption-free, right. well-regulated. Um, they're still going to look at the bottom line for themselves. Um, all right, so... Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in a go-it-alone phase right now, I feel, with the government. Um, and, I, I, you know, sometimes I think people look at these big bureaucracies like the United Nations. I'm thinking, of course, of the comments that have been made by um, John Bolton about them. But the truth is sometimes these lumbering, slow things, um, they can be a force multiplier. But um, what choice does the United States have in decisions um, legal, legal and diplomatic structures, and where are those decisions made? I mentioned the UN, but mm-hmm. I know you know like tons more than I do of this. No, no I, I, it's, it's a good question again, um, and it really, part of the post-World War II system was also the creation of the International Monetary Fund, uh, the IMF, 
This was the international financial institution that was established in order to protect the stability of the international monetary system. So many people thought that World War II was caused in part by massive fluctuations, people playing games with currency, etc. And this was designed to establish some common rules for the road and an international body where uh, the, the system could be stabilized. Um, but the, the dominant position of the U.S. dollar isn't decided by the IMF uh, or the United Nations or really any international body. It's really decided by a confluence of all the people we've talked about on this podcast, the governments uh, who tie their currency to the dollar, to a, an investor who's looking for a safe investment and chooses the dollar as a default, business partners who see the dollar as a reliable trade mechanism that you know people in different countries understand and trust, um, and you know, many of the government institutions or the quasi-government institutions that set monetary policy, like the Federal Reserve in the United States, the Bank of England in the United Kingdom, are independent in part, or quasi-independent, to provide assurances to all of these actors that monetary policy will be driven by economic concerns in the interest of maintaining stability rather than political factors. So, you know, that part of the deal is, uh, and that's why uh, what we see right now with Chairman Powell, you know, making his own statements about what's going on carefully, but, um, you know, somewhat forcefully, he's trying to show, you know, we, we, our interests are in monetary stability and in, you know, protecting the U.S. economy, but also, you know, understanding the interconnection with the global economy. The idea being you shelter them entirely from political vicissitudes, which exist everywhere, quite frankly, but... That's right. Well, so... You know, there have been instances, though, I would point out, you know, mm-hmm. there was a point in time where Reagan overrode mm-hmm. uh, a decision that was made by the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump has made some statements about um, vetoing, if you will, or overriding any decision. Um, I, I don't know that that's within his Article Two authority <laughs> um, or whether it would be good judgment, but um, it's happened before. Mm-hmm. I suppose true. it could happen again. Mm-hmm. And I would say it didn't go well for Reagan after that, if I recall. There were some... Uh, market fluctuations afterwards that were unpleasant at best. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if you're heavy-handed, as mm-hmm. this administration has decided to be, and, and we're not commenting on whether that'll ultimately, and in the fullness of time, mm-hmm. be good or bad, but it has been different. Mm-hmm. And it has appeared from the outside at times to look mercurial. Mm-hmm. Um, that some of these decisions were made, and then you know an opposite decision was rendered. And so we've talked, I noticed... Um, Words that we've used over and over again is predictable, mm-hmm. um, stable. I don't know how you think any of this would pl- play in, but globally, I wonder how this is being received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think to be fair, the, the sentiments against the dollar have been building for some period of time. This is not a brand new Trump administration phenomenon where uh, other actors, some of the emerging economies say, well, you know, why, why we should have a greater stake in the game here. Um, but I do think that the perception of uh, mercur- mercuriality, if that's a word, uh, and that type of an approach to trade policy uh, maybe has accelerated or made more vocal some of those concerns regarding the dominance of the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar. Uh, so it, I think it's become, you know, when the, the Bank of England is speaking about these things at a very uh, important gathering of the world's leading central banks, um, and he's not, he didn't tie it to, you know, policy statements by the Trump administration ex- explicitly, but 
uh, that was part of his message is the you know when there are changes in one system we we as a world can't be tied to that one system because we move up and down with the whims of the system and that was fully a month now before the proroguing of parliament and some of the um utter chaos that they appear to be in right now as they uh, attempt to sort of navigate what Brexit would really look like. So that is interesting that they were the ones um, sort of raising this issue. But, you know, one of the things that you pointed out to me is that back in 2016, um, then-Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu gave uh, some public comments in which he reflected on what could happen if the dollar lost its global firepower. But he also talked about... um, Changes, you know, when people, there will be a point in time where the boot of the United States will come off the neck of whatever country has been engaged in, you know, global <laughs> contumacy of some kind. Um, but what did he say? Well, he looks a little prescient now, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is 2016, as you said. This is towards the end of his time as Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, he gave a speech at the Carnegie Endowment here in town called, and it was on sanctions policy. He was very involved in uh, establishing sanctions policy in the Obama administration, and he was talking about lessons that he had taken away uh, for future sanctions practitioners and officials. Uh, it's a pretty interesting speech for anybody uh, who follows this topic. Uh, so he begins and he says, look, I think sanctions can be a really powerful tool. And he points to some examples where he would say sanctions contributed a positive international uh, change. Libya, uh, Myanmar slash Burma, uh, Sudan, uh, where sanctions, the U.S. and others used sanctions to promote political change that uh, we would say benefited the people of those countries and the international community. Uh, He also talked about Iran, and he said the U.S., together with the international community, had used sanctions to convince Iran to sign up to the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Uh, but the speech was pretty pretty cautionary overall. Uh, and he said on the topic that we're talking about today, he said, quote, the power of our sanctions is inextricably linked to our leadership role in the world. Sanctions were forged in the context of our position as the world's largest economy and the predominant role that the U.S. dollar and financial system plays in global commerce. And he urged policymakers to, quote, be conscious of the risk that the overuse of sanctions could undermine our leadership position in these areas within the global economy and therefore the effectiveness of the sanctions ourselves. So he was really talking about sanctions policy. If we use it too much, if we use it too unilaterally, other countries are going to say, you know what, why do we need, why should we bother with this? We got to figure out a better way to do things because we don't want to be kind of bossed around by the United States through these unilateral tools. Uh, but it's something that's like one sliver of the larger issue that we talk about when other countries look at the dollar and our policies and say, well, we're not sure we want to have to follow that just because of the dollar. I also like that he emphasized the idea that, you know, at some point it's, it's sort of like good time in prison or something. You can work your way off this penalty. <laughs> that's that's you right. You can work exactly. off the beaver, right. whatever. But um, one thing I find interesting is sometimes I like to look behind the things that Trump says or pull out something, but... You know, there's been a lot of, of sort of brinksmanship, I think, um, with respect to Iran. And, of course, Iran, you know, has you know returned in kind by not helping themselves, you know, yes. by sending tankers of oil yes, to Syria, uh, which are easily picked up by global satellites. But in any event, the president did say that he looked forward. I'm talking about President Trump, so you're not mishearing me. The president said he looked forward to Iran getting off sanctions. I like that, mm-hmm. actually. 
because he said that country has tremendous economic potential. And I believe in other instances, he sort of referred to the brain power of mm -hmm. Iran, um, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Um, so I, I, I know I've, I haven't mm -hmm. quite prepared you for this, mm -hmm. but I think you know, now's a good time to, we're talking about the executive, because this is really mm -hmm. sort of, I guess I, we've defended IE, but you know, it's an article course, two yeah. power and yeah. all of that. Um, you know, he's the he's not just the commander in chief, but you know, the one who's in charge of diplomacy and so on. And uh, yeah, it's borne out by some of the Federalist uh, documents. But in any event, I'd like to talk about Congress's role here. So let's assume arguendo that um, a president, not necessarily this president, because this isn't the first time this mm -hmm. has happened, but a president decides that sanctions will be moved to a particular point in time because there's an election coming mm -hmm. up and it'll look good mm -hmm. if the president took this or that position with respect to sanctions. What could Congress do to be the counterpoint and to mm -hmm. temper this? Mm -hmm. um, we talked about the Federal Reserve just with respect to the dollar, but when it comes to the sanctions mm -hmm. and sort of our global reputation for mm -hmm. stability, Congress mm -hmm. does have some tools. Yeah, yeah, no, Congress would say they have a lot of tools here. <laughs> uh, and they passed IEPA, they, they giveth and they can take it away. Uh, so, the, and what they've done a lot over the last 10 years is when they believe the president is not doing enough on sanctions, they've been not shy about passing additional legislation. So, in the last administration, we experienced this a lot in the context of Iran sanctions. Congress passed three or four different bills to toughen Iran sanctions that were designed really to force or convince the executive branch to do more to sanction Iran. We've seen this in the Trump administration early on when the uh, Congress passed a law called CATSA, Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, which tried to cajole the Trump administration to do more against Russia and Russia sanctions. Uh, so Congress is not shy about acting when they don't believe the executive is doing enough um, I, where I haven't seen them act, though, is in the reverse, where they believe the executive is doing too much <laughs> to impose sanctions. It seems like everybody wants to show they're the toughest kid on the block in imposing sanctions, uh, what, but softening sanctions is a, is a little bit different story. But I think they clearly do have authority in this space, and when there is political will, uh, they haven't been shy about using that authority. So if, for example, Democrats and Republicans thought that maybe we'd gone too far on a particular issue and it could collapse the economy, they could find a way. Yes, yes, I, I hope so. <laughs> a lot of smart staff yes, over there. Yes. Um, you know, I know we talked a little bit about this, but let's just go back for a, a second. Um, one of the things when we talk about a, a global cryptocurrency, and I joke about Libra, I shouldn't, um, but I would point out that they want to do this in Switzerland, a known tax haven and CITES of Nazi spoils, but that's where they want to be. So um, that said, um, let's let's face it, cryptocurrency, which, and there's so many skeptics, my goodness, mm -hmm. but that has a 10 minute or less reconciliation period. Normally when money is wired, mm -hmm. it's three days, right? And that gives us time yeah. to what? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's right. Uh, so... Three days is the normal standard for traditional financial institution wire instructions to be processed and for funds to be available receiving institution. Uh, and I think one of the drivers of not just cryptocurrency but other alternative payment mechanisms, uh, the financial technology revolution, has been ways to figure out to accelerate that period of time. 
So you have actors like you know Visa and Mastercard thinking about this issue as well. What can we do to you know improve and to improve our competitive position by accelerating payments? Um, and this is an area where the Fed, as you mentioned, Elisa, has tried to take a more of a leadership role. Uh, so the Fed, uh, there was a task force in 2017, the Faster Payments Task Force, uh, that came out with a report that urged uh, additional work to be done in this space. We've now had some actual developments over the last couple of years that the major worldwide banks have come up with their own private system uh, for what they call real-time payments called RTP, real-time payments. Uh, they've invested a lot of money in this system to try to uh, kind of stay on the cutting edge on this issue. Uh, and the Fed has now come up with its own system, which they call FedNow, uh, which is not going to be available for some period of time, which would, but which would ultimately be available to all the financial institutions uh, that are regulated by U.S. Uh, financial regulators, uh, but which would allow much faster payment processing. So it's an area where there's been a lot of talk and some development, uh, even in the traditional financial institutions. But I guess the question, too, and the lingering in the back of my mind um, is that, you know, that three-day reconciliation payment period allowed for us to make sure that it wasn't a sanctioned entity that was receiving the funds. And, and I would say that financial institutions are largely at this point finding this stuff through uh, many-to-one algorithms that are looking at um, anomalous transactions. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, I guess, if with these immediate transactions, if we're going to be able to do that and keep up, I guess we're just going to have to get better? <laughs> I don't know. What are your right, thoughts? Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a great question. And the debate about how to do you know, your you know, uh, due diligence on transactions, how to identify specific uh, suspicious transactions, mm -hmm. which transactions are suspicious, suspicious excuse me, uh, is one that is kind of going on in parallel with this, where you have a lot in the financial institution community saying, look, we should do more. We should rely on these algorithms. We should do more to rely on artificial intelligence to be smarter about this. Yeah, be... but sometimes those self-driving cars kill pedestrians. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> not so sure. Exactly the other side. Yes, yes. Right. We, we have a good way of doing this. It works. We're, we're very effective. We like what we do now. Uh, we don't trust the technology. So, like, uh, I think it was last year, FinCEN introduced a, a statement, basically a congressional pressure Kind of lukewarmly encouraging uh, developments in this area by financial institutions. You know, we think you should think about ways to be more creative in how you conduct your AML work. Uh, and I think that just reflects that tension that you're talking about right there, Lisa, where you've got people on one side saying, well, we're not so crazy about you changing. And then you've got tech people saying, this is crazy the way we do this now. We, we must change. Right. Well, that, it'll be interesting to see what they come. I mean, something will emerge, yes. I would hope. Yes, yes. Um, either that or we're Armageddon adjacent. I don't know what else to say. Uh, but, I mean, one of the one of the sort of the, the critical things, too, with respect to sanctions, counterterrorism, and so on, is basically the national security tool that these FIs have. And FIs, I mean, financial institutions, they have something called uh, suspicious activity reports, which are compiled, you know, those are things that, financial institutions write up um, to say, hey, this looks funny, um, you know, and that's something that law enforcement has access to. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't, this has been really critical to our national security. I mean, it's been part of the USA Patriot Act, Section 314, you know, A and B, talking about these things. These are 
little nuggets of leads for national security. I just don't, what happens to this after yeah, that? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's appropriate we're talking about this on 9-11 in a way because lots of people said if we had done a better job of, of counter-terrorist financing work in the lead-up to 9-11, we could have identified some clues that would have really helped. And so the Patriot Act, of course, passed in the aftermath of 9-11. One of the key parts of the Patriot Act that's maybe reported on a little bit less than some of the high-profile parts is just what you said. Some of the tools that allow banks to, that in some ways require banks to do more, to report on suspicious activities, allow them to share more information, allow them to talk to each other about suspicious uh, activities in order to counter terrorism financing. You know, perhaps what is suspicious now and what that information is will have to be expanded to, you know, consider our digital circumstances. Exactly. But that's, yeah. a, I guess that's a, member, that's a matter for the policymakers. So what are your parting thoughts? Um, we, it, it is interesting that we're talking about Carney having uh, initiated this, um, and I joke about him, you know, wishing we were still a colony. Um, I do wonder... Um, what this is, conversation is going to look like now that we have our the two you know major financial nations um, facing real challenges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're, the Brexit issue is certainly not resolved, and uh, the Scottish Supreme Court has today ruled um, that the suspension of Parliament by Boris Johnson is not legal. And what that does as a procedural matter over there is that that is going to push it to the Supreme Court, where that matter will have to be resolved. So I'd love it if. Um, after that matter is resolved, you'll come back to us again. But um, give me your thoughts. What, what would a road forward look like given all the sort of mm-hmm. chaos we're facing mm-hmm. right yeah. now and changes? Yeah, yeah. Policy wise. Well, you know, I, there's one, one road is that U.S. actually takes a leadership role in developing some of these future looking mechanisms. A global, uh, not don't call it global currency if that gives you the heebie-jeebies, but call it a global method of facilitating payments amongst nations that's not tied to one currency. And the U.S. takes a leadership role in developing the policy, putting together the tools, developing the technology. Uh, you know, that may help address some of the concerns that we would have from a, an anti-money laundering and a counter-terrorist financing perspective. But that would require us to acknowledge that change is afoot. And I don't think, as a country, we're quite ready to acknowledge that yet. Yeah, we don't love change. (laughs) (laughs) No, not our thing. Estonians, maybe a little different. Uh, Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I think we have the brain power in this country to do that. Um, uh, Some of these tech giants could certainly, some of these tech, let's just call them shorter people, probably have the capacity. And I can think of one person in D.C. who may have the capacity to give this some mm-hmm. some great thought who has a, a lovely startup nearby mm-hmm. um but th- i think that's right mm-hmm. i i think that is the critical thing forward and um I, I hope that the world does see um some of the other things that are said mm-hmm. in our overall stability mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and I, and I personally believe that you really there is some truth to the idea that well what is the, what are the alternatives today you know which right. currency is more stable than the u.s dollar and uh, it's, it's hard to see something that would, is a better option than the dollar right now. The question is, will others, you know, Europe is talking about developing an alternative. Uh, will others come up with something and kind of leave us on the shore, you know, clinging to the current system? 
Well, uh, certainly um, you're suggesting we have not seen our darkest hour. <laughs> On that cheery note. Also, we've been down before, but we always get back up again, just like the song says. All right, Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We do hope you'll come back soon. It's always awesome to have you around. I really enjoy it. Um, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to National Security Law today, but that's not enough. We really hope you're going to show up at the conference on November 7th and 8th. Again, uh, we'll hyperlink to the conference website so that you can buy your tickets. By the way, if you buy them early, they're cheaper. Just think about it. Okay, that's extra lattes. Uh, maybe even extra oat milk lattes. Just putting it out there. But also, remember to hit the subscribe button and to rate us on your listening platform of choice. And we want to remind you that we're going to hyperlink everything that we have in here. You can do your own independent reading. I also want to remind you that many continuing uh, legal education programs will allow you to do 11 hours of independent study. And you can often do that through the information that we provide on this podcast. You can find other links to the Black Letter Law, and we'll also feature some articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, and of course, in the notes to this podcast. Please feel free to drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, or reach out to us on Twitter. We'd like to hear from you. Our handle is at ABANatSec. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be back next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.